may be seated. Why should we go to Africa? It's a question that I've heard quite a bit over the course of my ministry. Less here, but still I'm certain that people wonder. I've heard a lot of people ask things such as, why do we fly over so many lost people to go and see the lost people there? Or why do we leave behind such need here to go and address need there? Should we not first concern ourselves with the needs here and make sure all of them are met before we go? And so this morning my goal is, is to look at the Word of God and to answer that question honestly from His Word. That why it is that we should be a church that has a vision for the nations. Why it is that we should be a church that has a heart for the globe. Why it is that we should be a church that sends and gives and goes. And I want you to understand this morning that I preach with a level of intensity. Because I understand what is at stake. I understand, first of all, what is at stake from a macro perspective when we're talking about the kingdom of God. I don't fully understand it. I'm incapable. But I understand that from the, the broad picture, if we step back and we see beyond ourselves, that we will see that we are a part of something much bigger than us. And that God, his kingdom is coming through Jesus Christ. And we have a responsibility and a role to play as his people. But there's also personally a lot at stake in this for me. If you were to ask me what my vision is for Iron City Baptist Church, I would use two words, maturity and multiplication. I don't come to you with a brilliant business strategy. I don't have that kind of mind. I don't come to you with a great four-step plan to a mega church. I don't got that. Two things. That I desire. Two things that as your pastor and as your pastors we hold on to with all of our hearts. We want you to be Christians that are growing in your faith. Christians that are maturing in doctrine and in theology. Christians growing hot in heart and firm in mind. Maturing so that you are du duplicating yourself and so that you are discipling other people. Maturing so that you know the depth that is in this word and the beauty that is there. Passionate about mining it for all of the gold that you can find. And multiplication. That we would be a church of multiplying pastors, that we would be a church that is multiplying churches, that we would be a church that is multiplying disciples here and to the ends of the earth. It's the very center of my heartbeat for our church. It's the very center of who I want us to be, is I want us to be a church that goes to the nations. I want us to be a church that goes to the edges of this country, the edges of this state, and the edges of this world. So at stake here, from a macro perspective, in my mind, is the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom that is coming, and whether or not we're going to be a part of that. And from a micro perspective, at stake here, is whether or not I am going to be your pastor for the next 40 years. The stakes are high for me. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 96. When we come to Psalm 96, this is what we would call a missionary psalm. It's a psalm looking ahead to the Messiah that is to come. 
The great church reformer actually called this a missionary hymn. And so we're going to read this together and try to answer the question, why should we go to Africa? Stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Psalm 96, God's word says, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Some translations actually translate that as he is to be feared by all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering in and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. When we come to verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name. At the center of our text this morning is worship. We will read throughout verse 96 a call to worship over and over and over again. He says, sing to the new song, sing yourself a new song, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Throughout the Psalms, it is often synonymous, uh, worship and singing are often synonymous with one another. And I think we certainly see that when we come to Psalm 96. The interesting thing about verse 1, though, is who it's addressed to. Verse 1 is not addressed to the nation of Israel, even though Psalms was given to the nation of Israel. Verse 1 is addressed to whom? All the peoples, right? All the earth. Sing to the Lord a new song. Bless, or sing to the Lord all the earth. Do you understand this morning that it is the responsibility of every man, every woman, every child, every nation, every state, every ethnicity, every religion, every tongue, every creed to worship the Lord as God? It is the responsibility of every breathing person to acknowledge and understand that he is supreme in value, supreme in beauty, supreme in worth, and to ascribe that worth to him in worship. It is the responsibility, in fact, of all the earth, of all the nations, of all the peoples, that they would bring glory to the name of God, that they would bring glory to the name of Jesus. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 96 has envisioned the day that is coming. He has envisioned Revelation chapter 5. Listen to, listen to me read these words and see if you don't hear the similarities. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb, lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What's the picture? The picture is Psalm 96, isn't it? The picture is Psalm 96 when, when he says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Ascribe to him his worth. Ascribe to him how, his glory. Declare his glory to all of the nations. Declare his glory to all of the creation. And then we see when Jesus returns and all of this is over. And he is, the earth and the creation is fully consummated. And we are reunited with our resurrected bodies. That we will stand with myriads of myriads of angels. And myriads of myriads of the people of God. And we will proclaim, worthy is the Lamb that was slain, we will sing the new song. This morning, brothers and sisters, you have a new song. We as the church are the keepers of the new song. We have the new song, the gospel, the good news. We have the song that says the old law is obsolete. We have the song that says all who come to Jesus will be set free. We have the song that says all the mothers that are desperate can find company and steadfast love. All the fathers that are, are depressed can find faithful God. All the orphans that are missing can find a nurturing God. All of the prisoners that are in jail can be liberated. Our world needs a new song, brothers and sisters. You look on the news... And you read about the massacre that was in Oregon this week. As he had Christians stand and shoot them in the head if they said they followed Jesus. We need a new song. We live in a world that is desperate. A world that is broken. And the only hope, the only hope is that on their lips is the new song of the gospel. We have a song that was written to be sung by every people of every nation and every tongue. We have the song, and it is our responsibility to take that song to the ends of the earth, that they may know it and sing it to the glory of God. Now when we come to verse 2, I think we begin to zero in a little bit more on the people of God. And I say that why? Because there's a, there's a change in who this is addressed to. Verse 1, addressed to all the earth. Verse 2, he says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation. So he's speaking here, and I still believe he's, he's looking long term to the people of God that will be after the final judgment. But we can still apply this to those of us who have already passed through the judgment. All those of us who are already the people of God. And he says, you should have on your lips, you should have on your mind, you should have on your heart your salvation. That day after day, day to day, you should be proclaiming the truth of your salvation. You should be proclaiming the truth of the grace that you now know. You should be proclaiming the riches of his glory because you are the one that has seen it firsthand. You are the one that has tasted it. You are the one that has experienced it. You are the one that knows it. You are the one that God has written on the tablet of your heart, his word. You are the one whose heart he has circumcised and set apart for his glory. You are the one that has been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So you as his people, you as his people, day to day, tell of his salvation. 
You as his people, day to day, tell of his marvelous works. You as his people, declare his glory to the nations. As we come to verse 3, that's where I want us to come back to our original question. Why is it that we should go to Africa? Why is it that because we are built with this new song and, and knowledge of our salvation and understanding the grace that we now have, how does that then fuel us to go to the nations? How does that then fuel us to go to the ends of the earth? How does that fuel us to go to Mexico and Salt Lake and Lots Creek and Swaziland? How does that send us? What is the motivation there? And I want us to see three specifically this morning to hopefully resolve perhaps this tension that might be in your hearts. The first one is, is we must go because God has a global heart. We must go because God has a global heart. We see this clearly in verse 3, right? He says, declare my glory to whom? The nations. To the nations. He's not talking to Israel here. Or he's not talking specifically only about Israel. He's not saying, Israel, I want you to, to sh build a wall all around your nation and then get to know me as good as you can and let everybody else go to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, I want you to declare my glory to the nations. I want you to declare my glory to all of the earth. This goes back to the very essence of who Israel was intended to be in the beginning. See, something that you may not realize is that missions is just as uh, much a part of the Old Testament is a part of the New Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, and he tells Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation, he says that he's going to make him into a great nation for what purpose? So that, he will, so that it will be a blessing to the nations. The purpose for Israel's existence is not so that they could only know the knowledge of God. Not so that they could alone could walk with God as his people. The purpose of Israel was that they would go out into the nations and show, him, show them how much more glorious their God is than the rest of the gods. The purpose of Israel is that they would be a blessed nation that would then in turn be a blessing to all of the other nations. Missions in the Old Testament, see? As a matter of fact, we come to Psalms. What do we see? We see him telling us, go, declare my glory to the nations. We go to Jonah. Jonah is sent on a missionary effort to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh to go and preach the gospel. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he doesn't want them to be saved. He doesn't want them to be right with God. And so we come to the great commission of Matthew 28, or the great commission as we see in Acts 1.8. And what we should understand is that's not new there. That, that, that's a continued arc. There's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, there's continuity of mission among the people of God. You see, it has always been the responsibility of the people of God to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Always. Old Testament, New Testament. Israel, church. The responsibility of the people of God is to take the glory of God to, uh, the people of God to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Think about how similar Luke's uh, recording of the Great Commission is to uh, 96.3, Psalm 96.3. He says that because you've been filled with the power of the Spirit, that now you will be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of salvation. Witnesses of marvelous works. Witnesses of the grace of God. And now as witnesses you will go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 28, he says, go therefore, and declare, uh, go therefore and make disciples of whom? Make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have taught you. The only way that we cannot have a global heart ourselves, the only way that we can be Christians without a heart for the nations is if we miss the very heart of God himself. Our God is a missionary God. Do you understand that? Our God is a missionary God. He saw us in our depravity. He saw us in our death. He saw us separated from himself. And what did he do? He didn't rest on his laurels. He didn't stay and bask in his glory, which he had every right to do. No, he sent his son after us as a missionary. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and came after us and raised up an army to go to the ends of the earth. And guess what, brothers and sisters? We are the army. Our God is a missionary God, and his people must be a missionary people. Our God is a missionary God, and his people must be a missionary people. You see, what God is always telling his people to do, he's doing it right here when he says declare his glory to the nations. He's doing it in the Great Commission in Acts 1-8, Matthew 28. He's always telling his people, look beyond yourself. Look beyond yourself. It's not just about white plains. It's not just about what's comfortable for you. It's not just about what's important to you. It's not just about what you're used to. It's not just about what you think is a good idea. He's always saying, declare it to the nations. Go to the nations. Be my witnesses to the nations. Look beyond your cocoon. Look beyond your culture. Look beyond your people. Look to the nations. John 3, 16 says what? For God so loved who? The world. The world. And for all of us who enjoy the goodness of that promise, for all of us that enjoy the riches of that salvation, should we not love the world as God does? Imagine with me for a second that you have a brother that is at war overseas. And one day you're with your father when he receives a letter from your brother. And so you gather around the kitchen table, maybe your mom's there, your father's there, you're there. And your father opens the letter from your brother and he begins to read it. And your brother begins to tell your father of how horrible the conditions are. He can't sleep, there are constantly bullets buzzing over the camp. They've been cut off from the rest of the battalion and as a result now they have been going quite hungry. They're wearing mere threads, he has attached a picture. Your brother looks painfully thin. His clothes are in shambles. He's obviously depressed. And as your father holds that picture, he sobs. And he weeps. And his tears begin to cover the table. Trying to be the voice of reason. You look over at your father and you say, Dad, we just really don't have time for this. There's so much going on here at home. There's so much work for us to do here. There's so many things for us to take care of here at home. We we really don't have time for that. You missed your father's heart, didn't you? As your father wept over the picture, wishing that he could just give his son a hug, wishing that he could just give his son a, a hot meal and a kiss and tell him that he loves him and that he's proud of him. As he wept over the picture, you were thinking about here. Your father, as he wept over the picture, was not saying we need to neglect home. Your father never had any intentions of neglecting home. 
No, as your father wept over the picture, he was weeping with love and weeping with burden and weeping with concern. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that you have brothers all over the earth living like that? I watched this week as children walked barefoot through sewage that the government can't afford to fix. That was right outside of their homes. I stood this week by a grave of a man who preached and preached and preached until he entered into a 46-year-old grave. I saw people that were hungry. God is not asking us to neglect home. God is asking us to hold on to his heart. To take hold of it. His heart for the globe. His heart for the nations. Why should we go to Africa? Why should we go to Mexico? Why should we go to Salt Lake? Why should we go to Lots Creek? Because God's heart is there. That's why we should go. We should go because God's heart is there. And if we are going to be his people with his heart for his glory, we have to go and take hold of his heart with both hands and say we are his people. We are, one, we are many parts and one body under his head and we will go where he has sent us. And he has sent us to the nations. Why else? Why else? Not only is it because God has a heart for the globe, not only is it because God has a global heart, but we must go because God is worth it. We must go because God is worth it. Consider how central the worthiness of God is to our text, right? It says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Verses 7 and 8, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. It says that we should ascribe to God the worth that he is. That through our worship, we should bring him offerings. We should bring him worship that in some way allows everybody else to see how worthy he is of it. I think if we were to summarize everything that he, was to, he, he is saying in Psalm 96 around the theme of worthiness, we might say it this way. That we must go because God is worth our sacrifice and their worship. We must go because God is worth our sacrifice and their worship. Let's unpack that summary a bit. Let's first, let's think about it from the context of our sacrifice. I'm thinking most specifically a verse, uh, about verse 8. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. We have the responsibility as God's people. To ascribe to him. In other words, to, to proclaim, to, to, to understand and to see how valuable God is and then to declare it so. And he says the way that we are able to declare it so is through the bringing of an offering. That through the offerings that we bring to God, we speak of our understanding. We speak of our comprehension of his value. We speak of our comprehension of his worth. And he's saying, so he's saying, bring to God an offering. Bring to God a sacrifice. Bring to him something that allows everyone else, that allows the nations to understand how infinitely valuable, infinitely glorious, and infinitely powerful God is. 
See, for the nation of Israel, when they were to bring an offering, they didn't bring God their leftovers. That's what we do a lot. That's not what Israel was understood to do. When Israel was to bring God an offering, they would bring God their first fruits. They would bring God their spotless bull. He was to get not the leftovers, but the best of what they have. It was to hurt. It was to be sacrificial. It was to show that God is more worthy than the best fruit that I have. God is more worthy than the best bull that I have. God is the supreme provider for me. God is the supreme treasure for me. And so they would bring their offerings to show that. Now let me ask you, what do your offerings say about your value of system of God? The offerings that you bring to him. What do they say about the worth that you see in him? If our church is going to have a vision for the nations, it's going to cost us. See, as Christians, we don't bring bulls and we don't bring fruit. We bring ourselves as living sacrifices. We deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then we follow Jesus. We lay our lives on the altar saying, God, this is the best that I have. This is all that I have, and you get it all. You get everything that I am and everything that I'm going to be, and I will follow you for the rest of my life costly if we're going to be a church that has a vision for the nations it's going to be costly for us as a church and if you're going to be a christian that has a vision for the nations it's going to be costly to you as a christian it's going to cost you money you're going to have to pay to go it's not cheap it's going to cost you vacation days not only do you have to give up on the boat you have to give up on the time to go out on the boat right it's costly You're going to have to give up some days that you would normally use playing golf at the beach. Instead, go to the nations and preach the good news of of, uh, Jesus and declare his glory. It's going to be costly as you have to step out of a culture that you're comfortable with and go into a culture that you're not. To go and talk to people that don't look like you, think like you, believe like you. As a church, it's going to be costly for us. We've got big decisions to make in the days ahead. We've got to decide whether or not this sanctuary is going to be good enough or if we're going to build another one. Or if that money would be better suited to build another orphanage. Or if that money would be better suited to to build a church in Mexico or a church somewhere else that's unreached. We've got big decisions to make as the people of God here. It's costly. But as we consider the costliness of it, I want to remind you of the costly nature of the gospel anyway. Think of Shabani's life. Most of you know Shabani. Shabani Matsubula was the, the pastor that we partnered with in Swaziland. I had made a promise to him when he was here in January that I was going to go to Africa and see him. And that was why I went um, the last two weeks. The Monday before we left, Shabani died. Shabani's life was a costly life, brothers and sisters. He leaves behind three kids, 20 and under. A niece that he raised that is his daughter that's now 25. 19 orphans at the orphanage that looked to him as father. He lived on a salary of about $2,000 a year. Our church raised about $5,500 two Sundays ago. That's going to pay his salary for two years. And yet as you go around Swaziland and as you talk to the pastors, what you find out is that essentially everything that he made and everything that he had, he gave it away. Robin was telling me a story about when they bought him some boots. They had to sit him down and say, Shabani, please don't give the boots away. 
Because his first instinct was to give them away. Everywhere you go throughout Manzini, which is the capital of Swaziland, they know who this preacher was. They know about this man named Shabani. By the way, I thought I was going to a whole country of Shabanis. He was one of a kind. He was exceptional. Everywhere you go, the, the school I preached at, they knew about Shabani. The restaurants you went into, they know about Shabani. The pastors knew about Shabani. The orphans knew about Shabani. The churches knew about Shabani. The people in South Africa, I was preaching eight hours away in a township called Boykatsu in South Africa, and they knew about Shabani. I think I finally realized the value of his life. When we had preached at a school, we were at a school, and our team did a presentation, and Alan did a, a gospel presentation at the school. It was about 700 people, teenagers. And there, man, I just preached the gospel. And uh, we preached and preached and preached. And after the end, we were told that there were, there were two of the orphans that live in the orphanage that Iron City funded and Shabani operated that went to the school that heard, heard the sermon that day. And at the end of the sermon, they bring this 16 or 17-year-old girl up. And they introduce her to us as one of those orphans. And they tell her that we are friends of Shabani, and tears begin to stream down her face. This was a person that didn't have love and then had it. This was a person that didn't have a home and then had one. This was a person that didn't have a role model and then had one. Shabani's life was costly. It cost him everything, ultimately. But I am convinced... That when he stood before his Lord and Savior, and he looked down at Shabani and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That in that moment, there were no regrets. There were no regrets of the salary given away. There were no regrets of the boots that he only wore for a week. There were no regrets of the life that was hard lived. No, he had lived his life as a valiant proclaimer of the gospel to the nations. He had lived his life as one who loved orphans, who attempted to mobilize Africans to go on mission. I'm praying this morning that God will raise up some Shabanis here. I'm praying that God will raise up some Shabanis here. Some men and women that will lay their lives on the altar of the cross and say, Jesus, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whoever you want me to be, I will be. Whatever I have, it is yours. Why should we go? Because God is worthy of the offerings that we bring. God is worthy of the life that it might cost us. But he's also worthy of their worship. He's worthy of their worship. I think that is really encapsulated in all of Psalm 96. The, the vision is, is that the day when all of the peoples will proclaim his, his name, that it's filled with singing and it's filled with, with worship. This is the heart of Christians. This is who we are to be. We are to be people filled with worship. We are to be people who are always proclaiming how good God is and enjoying and reveling in his glory and proclaiming how supreme he is over all the other gods and that all the other gods live in fear of him. We are to live in such joy and in such contentment and such satisfaction as we walk with God that out of the overflow of the joy that we have and out of the overflow of the worship that we have, we want every man, woman, and child to know the same joy. We want every man, woman, and child to know the same worship. 
It has always been the responsibility of the people of God to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Well, to what end? John Piper wisely said that missions exist because worship does not. It is our responsibility. In fact, it is our mission as the people of God, as the church of God at Iron City and a part of the global church to bring worship and to fill this earth with worship of the God on high. That is our mission. Our mission is to fill this earth with worship. While I was in Africa, I heard God worshiped in four languages. Swana, Siswati, Afrikaans, and English. And on Sunday morning, I was preaching to a rather affluent white Afrikaans congregation. And they were blending the songs uh, between English and, and Afrikaans. And I, I was sitting there and I was just struck by how beautiful it was. And as I was listening and I was thinking about the, the singing that I heard at the prison, that was the most beautiful singing that I'd ever heard in my entire life. And now the singing at the Afrikaans church and the singing in Saswati that was to come, I was sit there, sitting there and all I could think is, God, you are worth so much more than this. You are worth so much more than this. You are worth every tribe and every tongue and every nation. You are worth all of them singing in harmony the new song that worthy is the lamb that was slain. You are worthy. Why should we go to Africa? Why should we go to the ends of the earth? We should go because worship isn't there yet. We should go because God is worthy of the worship of every language. We should go because God is glorified when all of the accents and all of the diversity comes together in a beautiful mosaic, harmonizing for his glory. We should go. We must go. Finally, we must go because God will judge all peoples. We must go because God will judge all peoples. Verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. We understand that one day, every man, woman, and child will stand before the throne room of Jesus before his judgment seat. This is the second time. Remember verse 1 was addressed to whom? Adr verse 1 was addressed to all the earth. Then the second time that that happens in our passages. And then in verse 9, right? Verse 9. At the end, at the very end. All the earth. Tremble uh, before him all the earth. First time singing. Second time trembling. Trembling to what end? Trembling because they eat... Because one day they will bow down before him. Trembling because the demons tremble at his name. Trembling because his holiness is powerful and potent enough to incinerate them on the spot. Trembling because there is no reason unholy people should stand before the awesome and fearsome holiness of Jesus himself. Trembling because he will judge all peoples with equity. And do not buy the lie, do not buy the heresy that says if they never hear, they will be saved. Do you hear me? Let me say that one more time. Do not buy the heresy of universalism 
that says, if you don't go, they're all going to be okay. Man, how that would drains the church of her mission. How that robs Jesus of his glory. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's amazing the heresies that we can come up with in the church to make ourselves feel better about our unfaithfulness and mission. But I want you to hear verses 18 through 23 of Romans chapter 1 and notice how similar the language is to Psalm 96. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness. Remember, judge and equity. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All means all. That every person that is ungodly, they will face the judgment of God. They will face the wrath of God. And who is, who is that? Everybody. Romans 3, no one is good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people will be judged by the wrath of God for their ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, he really turns it up a notch. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Understand that if we believe that people can be saved, having not heard, we completely dismiss all of the New Testament. We dismiss John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to me except through the Father. It doesn't mean they can worship the creator of the sun. They can't worship the creator of the sky. They can't worship the creator of the people. They have to worship Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who gives us access to the Father. If people can be saved and not hear the gospel, if they can be saved by our unfaithfulness, if they can be saved because we haven't went, imagine how wicked the Great Commission really is. It means the gospel is not good news at all. Instead, it means every time we go and every time we preach, we are putting people on the hook of judgment. Otherwise, had they not heard, they would have been saved. Why then would Jesus tell us, go and tell everyone that he is Savior? Why was it that Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations if in going, we were making them subjects to judgment? No, they are without excuse. There is no excuse if I didn't have a copy of the Bible. There is no excuse that I did not hear the gospel in my lifetime. There is no excuse that I did not hear the gospel in my tongue. That's why we have to go. We have to go because they don't have an excuse. We have to go because we have the good news. We have the new song. We have to go so that they might be called out of the dark and into the light. We have to go so that they might know that they can be set free in Christ Jesus. This morning, if that doesn't break your heart, I wonder if that's because you've never looked them in the eye before. And I say that out of experience. I went and I sat down. That we, lived, we were going and doing door-to-door -door in this township, and there are tens of thousands of these little tin shacks 
tens of thousands of them. Septic uh, sewage running through the streets, garbage mounded up high, kids playing in it. And we went and we sat in this one little shack on their, on their chair. And this whole family is there. And they are emaciated with HIV. Father, mother, son, daughter. There's something that God does to you when you stare in the eye of an HIV positive little girl, an HIV positive mom. There's something that God does to you in that moment that just can't be replicated. There's something that God does in there that just rips and shreds your heart. Went to the orphanage, much happier place. There's this little guy named Dengue, and he's following me everywhere that I go. And every time I'm standing there, I feel his little hand just slip up into mine and grab it. I told him that it was time for me to go, that I had to leave. And he grabbed a hold of my hand and he said, please don't. And let me tell you something. There's something that happens to your heart when an orphan's hand slips inside of you that you just can't explain. We need to go and we need to look them in the eye. We need to go and we need to see their pain. We need to go and, and shoulder their burden. We need to see it. Our hearts must break that one day they will stand before the judgment seat having never heard the gospel. Our hearts must break when we realize that their children are like our children. Their moms and dads like us. If I'm honest with you, Africa haunts me. Can't get the pictures out of my brain. I go to sleep and I dream about them. I fell my tears there. I don't know that I'd cried in 10 years. And I came home on the edge of tears the whole flight. I walked into the new house that I was building and I was ready to sob. 16 people living in a house the size of my daughter's bedroom. I don't know for certain that Africa needed me, but I know for certain that I needed Africa. I needed my heart to break for lost people. I needed my heart to break for the global heart of God. I needed my mind opened up to have a vision for the nations. This morning I pray that God will set your heart on fire. I pray that God will place in you a burden for the nations, a vision for the nations. I pray that he would awaken us as a people to prayer. That he would awaken us as a people to sacrificial and radical generosity. I pray that he would awaken us as a people that go sacrificially, often. I pray that he would awaken us, and I believe with all of my heart, if that happens, if we come this morning with repentance, I believe with every fiber of my being that we, as an Iron City Baptist Church, can change the world by the power of God. And so this morning, I invite you to come, repent, come, pray, come, offer your life as a sacrifice to God. Let me pray for us.